we are going to unite and level up. I will lead this great party into a new era. You are fake news. Hi guys and welcome back to Politics Mad. After a long summer recess we are back and so much has happened, way more than you would expect during a summer recess, isn't that right Raul? Yes it really has, both on the international stage and on the domestic stage. It's good to be back, it's almost like we have, we shouldn't have really left for summer because I mean every single week there was more than enough to make one episode quite frankly. Ollie, why don't you start us off with what's been happening while we've been away on the domestic side of things? Yeah well I think the big thing that happened domestically has to be the school exams fiasco with the A-level results. I mean, this was huge. I mean, a week before in Scotland, they had their own algorithm to decide A-level results because people couldn't take uh, exams during lockdown, clearly. And Scotland got it wrong. They reneged, uh, they changed it, and they brought in teachers' predicted grades. A week later, this having happened, the British government decides, oh, yeah, well, you know, we'll do the same in England. They didn't, they didn't change it. They said, oh, no, we'll use an algorithm too. And as a result, many students were left disappointed with grades far lower than they expected. And this disproportionately benefited a lot of students from private schools. Yeah, I remember when the fiasco started in Scotland, which has its results maybe a week and a half before England's one, and various commentators saying, you know, this is, this is scheduled to happen exactly like it's happened in Scotland in England. Is there going to be a change now in England? And absolutely nothing happened. And lo and behold, on A-level results day in England, the exact same thing happened, uh, which brought the UK government, which obviously handles English education matters, into a serious amount of problems of people saying, well, if you saw this happening in Scotland 10 days before it happened in England, why didn't you do anything? Yeah, and obviously the government eventually reneged on this. They eventually said, OK, we'll scrap what Boris Johnson came to call a mutant algorithm. And basically said, we'll go with teachers' original predicted grades. But, of course, by the time you do that, a lot of students who have been rejected by their first-choice universities may already have accepted offers from universities they might not have wanted to go to. So as a result of that, despite getting perhaps better grades, they may not have been able to accept them. So in some cases, the damage would already have been done. So everyone involved in the crisis assumed that Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, um, obviously for the UK, but specifically for England, would have resigned given the fury over this crisis. But he doesn't. He is still Education Secretary. But two other officials went, the head of Ofqual, Sally Collier, and the top civil servant in the Department of Education, Jonathan Slater. Now, the British government came into a lot of stick for this. Ollie, why was that the case? Well, I think personal embarrassment, probably. I mean, it was, I think, in some cases, it was easy for them to perhaps shift the blame onto the various organisations, despite the fact that Ofqual maintains they told the government about potential problems a week before results day. So they said, you know, we gave the government the chance, they had the chance to change it, but still the government pushed on. So in some cases, I imagine it's them trying to sort of deflect the blame on this. So if they can get a, you know, a civil servant and the head of Ofqual to resign, then from their perspective, it protects them. But I guess there's another sense, they don't want to be caving into government opposition. 
it was quite notable that during this period, uh, Keir Starmer and Labour never actually called for Williamson's resignation. It was almost as if they wanted him to sort of fall on his own sword. And perhaps for the government, they didn't want to be seen to doing that. And it was, it was quite interesting in that obviously he didn't resign. But in, you know, decades gone by, the, the notion of individual ministerial responsibility, the idea that you as a minister of kind of responsible for everything your department does, whether it was in direct influence of what you did or not. And if something goes badly wrong, you should resign instantly. Has individual ministerial responsibility vanished? Well, it's interesting because I think one thing you'd say with the current government under Boris Johnson and with the influence of Dominic Cummings is that it's perhaps far more centralised than previous governments. You know, there's a sort of era of, you know, the kind of Tony Blair style ruling where it was a very much a centralised policy coming from the top rather than perhaps uh, different governments where it's more of a spread responsibility perhaps. Interesting. And moving on to a bit more of a strictly political event now, the Lib Dems have elected a new leader, but he's certainly not a new face. Talk us through it. Whom did they elect? Well, they have elected Sir Ed Davey. Now, people may be wondering, Sir Ed Davey, has, hasn't he been the leader of the Lib Dems for the past nine months since the general election? Well, no. See, um, the Lib Dem election has been going on for a very, very long time now. I think they wanted time to sort of heal, because as you may remember, their former leader, Joe Swinson, lost her seat during the 2019 election. And since then, Sir Ed and the party's president have been acting leaders of the Lib Dems on a temporary basis. Now, since then, there has been an election and only on a 57% turnout, Sir Ed Davies has been elected the Lib Dem leader. He got 43, nearly 43,000 votes compared to his only challenger, uh, Leila Moran, who had 24,000. Now, what's interesting about this is Ed Davey lost the last leadership election to Joe Swinson and... Uh, also the party dynamics of the two candidates. Davy is seen as a moderate within the Lib Dems, whereas Leila Moran was seen as from the party's left, and had even openly said she wanted to be seen as more left-wing than Labour in some places. So perhaps this is the Lib Dems trying to sort of return to their more liberal, moderate roots, as they try and rediscover themselves in this time of what you might call electoral oblivion for them, because obviously since the coalition government, they've really struggled to win back support except in the European elections last year. Yes, uh, that is the case. I mean, I, I remember when Ed Davey was uh, elected the leader of the Lib Dems, obviously because people like us are political geeks. However, it didn't really make any sort of headline. I mean, it was just instantly enveloped by the other news of the day, be it what the government's doing or the coronavirus pandemic or what's happening in the States. Um, so how... Do you, how much do you think the new leader will be able to cut through the noise and actually put, uh, put himself on a platform representing the party? Well, it's interesting because when Sakir Starmer was elected leader of the Labour Party, we commented that when him, stuff like him appointing his first shadow cabinet, new ministers, none of that was covered. So it's very interesting that if the new leader of the Labour Party initially struggled to make himself known and up his recognisability, you know, more followers on social media, then the leader of the Lib Dems is going to struggle even more than that. I mean, what's perhaps interesting about this is we're now in a position where two leaders of main political parties are knights of the realm, which almost sounds quite old-fashioned in some ways. 
soon they'll be going to the House of Lords. You maybe, maybe. I mean, is that, I suppose that could still be a thing to have a. I mean, not since Alec Douglas Hume has a political party leader been a lord. So, I guess the times are certainly changing. But um, I mean, Ed Davey. He is experienced in government. He was the Secretary for Energy and Climate Change during the Lib Dem coalition. So he is a veteran of the party. He has held office. So they'll be hoping he can bring that experience. So I've got a clip of his victory speech here. So you can hear a little bit about what he's about and perhaps what he might bring to the party. We have to wake up and smell the coffee. Nationally, our party has lost touch with too many voters. Yes, we are powerful advocates locally. Our campaigners listen to local people, work hard for communities and deliver results. But at the national level, we have to face the facts of three disappointing general election results. The truth is, voters don't believe the Liberal Democrats want to help ordinary people get on in life. Voters don't believe we share their values. And voters don't believe we are on the side of people like them. So what are his major challenges? Well, first of all, I think he's going to have to wait a bit because I, I think it's going to be very difficult for the Lib Dems to establish a firm policy platform during a global pandemic. Because if Labour is not able to do that at the moment, and indeed I doubt Labour even wants to do that at the moment, then I really doubt the Lib Dems will. Because, obviously, as you said, they were firmly opposed to Brexit. They were the anti-Brexit party. They were, they were the revoke Article 50 party in the 2019 election. So they've got a big task now. I mean, mm, Davies already said he will not be campaigning to rejoin the EU, but the, the Lib Dems will be the most pro-EU party in Parliament. So from that perspective, they've got a long way to go, but it'll be very interesting to see if they can mount a revival, because... I imagine some people in the Labour Party would be quite happy to see a resurgent Lib Dems because they want them to take some moderate votes off the Conservative Party. Because if the 1997, 2001, 2005 elections prove anything, it's that Labour tends to do well when the Lib Dems do well. I mean, Ed Davey will probably be hoping to win back the key constituencies in the southwest of England around Cornwall and those areas, ones that really took a heavy hit in 2015. Yes, I mean, that used to be one of their strongholds. And as we were not even near the 24, uh, 24 election, but as we slowly inch closer to it, I'm sure that will be within their eyes. Now to a bit more recent events, um, the things that have been happening this week. And obviously the elephant in the room is Brexit. Yes, we all thought we had forgotten about it and it was all done and dusted, but it was never really too far for, from our lips. Um, the government has got in a lot of stick this week over a new bill that they've tabled around the internal market and many have decried it, saying it breaks international law. Um, even a minister got up in Parliament in this slightly, what I thought was almost surreal moment when they actually said that, yes, this will make, break international law. Why is this new bill so contentious? What's, what's contained in it? Well, the internal market bill, which has been put forward by the government, it breaks international law because it allows the government to pass regulations on state, and, state aid and trade 
which breaches the withdrawal agreement negotiated with the EU last year, so more specifically the Northern Ireland Protocol. So you may remember last year when Boris Johnson was trying to renegotiate deals, trying to get rid of the Northern Ireland backstop, all of that, that involved the legislation we're talking about. And what this bill proposes would go against that. Now, the government have said this is just an insurance policy for these upcoming trade talks. For If it doesn't go well, they want to be able to do this as an insurance policy. But what's happened is it's now threatened Brexit talks with negotiators because the people from the EU, you know, Michel Barnier, the top negotiator for the EU, those around him have been voicing their displeasure. There have been Twitter spats. They came over here last week to try and discuss it, ask what's going on. So there's been a lot of displeasure around that. The UK's top legal civil servant, a man named Jonathan Jones, resigned in protest. And many former Brexiteers in Parliament, uh, who were very pro-Brexit, very pro uh, the legislation last year, have actually come out and said, we shouldn't be doing this, we shouldn't be breaking international law. People like Geoffrey Cox, the former Attorney General, and indeed every living former Prime Minister, even David Cameron and Theresa May, have come out and said, we would not be doing this, you know, this isn't good for the UK, our standing around the world... Um, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House in America, has said if the UK wants to break international law, they can forget about a trade deal. So there's a really great worry that this legislation, which, by the way, passed its first reading in the Commons last night by 77 votes, despite Tory rebels and abstentions, could severely damage the UK's standing around the world. Yeah, and for me, that's where the crux of this story lies. I mean, there is the the matter of how it influences Brexit, it allows the Britain to um, go against the state aid rules that uh, the withdrawal agreement has in it, and it also goes against uh, the provisions of if there is no deal, how Northern Ireland will effectively be re remaining in the EU's customs union. But for me, that's not really where the heart of the story lies. I mean, Lots of Conservative Brexiteers have come out against this. And as, as you were saying, lots of Conservative ex-Prime Ministers have come out against this. And the reason for that is wholly because of this breaking international law reason. The UK, as we all know, signed the withdrawal agreement in January with the EU. That is a legally binding treaty. It is part, effectively, of international law. This internal market bill that is making its way through the Commons and has just gone past its first hurdle, in these in three clauses, explicitly describes how it will, in some certain cases, break that treaty and therefore international law. And this is problematic in two reasons, I think. First, because Britain stands for international law. I mean, most Western countries have a big stake in the rules-based system of which international law is a big pillar. And while over the last five years uh, listeners may be a bit confused at the beating that international norms and law has taken, uh, particularly from populists such, such as Donald Trump, it nonetheless remains a key tenant of UK political culture. And the second reason is kind of based off that. We can't really criticise, or we'll have certainly less ammunition in criticising other countries, say like China, for them disregarding their international obligations in international law, such as with the issue of Hong Kong, which directly goes against the Sino-British Agreement of 1984, which stipulates one country, two systems. We can't really have that much weight in criticising 
that breach of international law if we ourselves breach it in some forms as well. And that's where the issue lies. And that's why it's provoked this so much visceral opposition, I think, amongst Tory party grandees. Yeah, and last night, particularly interesting, with Sakir Starmer, the Labour leader, stuck in isolation at home with one family member displaying potential COVID-19 symptoms, it was left to Ed Miliband to take the lead in a much-discussed speech. So we've got a clip of Miliband's speech here in the Commons and Boris Johnson before him. Last year, we signed the withdrawal agreement in the belief, which I still hold, that the EU would be reasonable. Now, after everything that has recently happened, we must consider the alternative. We ask for reasonableness and common sense and balance. And we still hope, we still hope to achieve that, Mr Speaker, through the joint committee process, in which we will always persevere, no matter what the provocation. I have to say, Madam Deputy Speaker, from a man who said he wanted to get Brexit done and won an election on it, this bill gets Brexit undone by, 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 by overturning key aspects of the protocol that were uh, agreed. And, and, I, do, and I, do say, I, do say to the, I do say to the Prime Minister, while I have been part of many issues of contention across this dispatch, bo dispatch box, I never thought respecting international law would, in my lifetime, be a matter of disagreement. Yeah, I mean, we were, it's, it's an amazing speech uh, from Miliband. Um, we were discussing it a bit before we started recording, but my God, if, if Miliband had given speeches like this during his tenure as leader of the opposition, I think we would have had a very different five years, don't you, don't you think, Ollie? Well, I think Ed Miliband's gone through a sort of renaissance since he... Uh stop becoming leader i mean um i actually interviewed him a couple of years ago because he was bringing his podcast to my old university and he comes across as sort of very chatty and i think since leaving the leadership he's sort of been able to pursue his own interests sort of relax a bit more there's less of a pressure on him and he's able to now that he's got the business brief definitely improved and if, if we had seen performances from back about five years ago, we might have seen a different result in 2015. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's interesting to see the 10-year the, the political journey that he has made. And I shan't expect that that will be the last impassioned speech against this bill uh, for the reasons I've stated, whether it's from Miliband or anyone else, quite frankly, Labour or Conservative. And lastly, just a quicker hit on the unemployment figures that we've seen um, come out. Uh, the headline being unemployment at its highest level for two years and young people most affected. A sign of things to get getting worse as winter approaches, you think? It does look that way because obviously with the whole pandemic uh, the unemployment rate grew to 4.1% which is far higher than it had been previously and obviously those between the 16 to 24 age range suffered the largest drop in employment and you'd probably think that's because less entry-level jobs are currently being advertised and presumably when people were laid off it's the bottom you start at because they're the jobs that uh, you can easily let go so hopefully that will change soon but we are now in a recession and we may be seeing much more of this as time goes on. Right, which brings us nicely on to the international section. As we did for the domestic section, a quick 
rundown of what we've seen over the last few months. It's been largely dominated by the US election. I mean, we saw various events happening. We saw the Republican and Democrat national conventions. I remember watching both quite a lot and reporting on both. And the Democrat convention struck me as very well organised, very, very tight, very slick, extremely slick and well produced. And the Republican one uh, struck me as surprisingly actually of the same um, character in terms of slickness. Uh, there were rumours that it wouldn't make it to, in comparison to the Democratic one because of its last-minute planning and that. But one which featured the Trump family prominently, extremely prominently. Every single night you had Donald Trump speaking and a member of his immediate family, which I think characterised to me how much over these last four years the Republican Party has effectively become the party of Trump, the party where there is no real room for disagreement with his policies or with his administration. At the same time in the US, you had this explosion of racial strife with the ongoing protests over George Floyd and other instances um, in America. You have now had the Belarus protests continuing now for about a month and a half, which we'll discuss in a minute. And you have certain other things, like a, I think um, quite a notable story from this uh, summer was a bit of a business story. Tech stocks continued to surge way past their pre-coronavirus market capitalizations, with Apple hitting a two trillion US dollar valuation uh, for some time. I'm not sure if it's at that right now, but it was at that about a month ago. Put that in perspective, two trillion US dollars. I mean, the British economy, you're looking at about three low kind of threes trillions of um, US dollars. So th this is a company that's worth more than half of the whole of the UK, which is just it's just mind boggling. But to cut through all of the noise, let's just focus on two issues then. First, with the US election. Yeah, um, this week in particular, we've seen the election turn to an area that we definitely don't hear much from, from Donald Trump especially, and that's climate change. So with the wildfires that have raged across the West Coast and um, apparently four million acres have been burned. Isn't that right? Yes, uh, it's truly gobsmacking the um, the area that has been burned. Four million acres. I mean, when, when you say a figure like that, it doesn't really cut through. But um, as, I mean, last year I worked on a farm, which was just about four million acres in Australia. And I can tell you that's that's more than half the size of Belgium. That's a truly massive area. And that's all burnt, dead. This is, it's, it's, it's insane, the area. And it's, it's similar to, I mean, earlier in the year we had the story coming out from Australia of similarly just vast, vast swathes of territory just burnt. And this is just the beginning. The West Coast's fire season is actually not when you would expect it is. It's not at the, right now, kind of like the end of summer and the height of summer. It's more actually in autumn because in autumn they have stronger wind, which is a key component as well as heat of fueling these fires. Now, Trump visited some of the areas affected on the West Coast and he met with officials from California there and other states uh, this is what he had to say when a, an official challenged him on his argument that the fires um, caused havoc primarily due to poor forest management. Have a listen. That science is going to be key because if we if we ignore that science and sort of put our head in the sand and think it's all about vegetation management, we're not going to succeed together protecting Californians. Okay, it'll start getting cooler. I you wish just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> Well, I don't think science knows, actually. 
yes, as we've, we've grown quite accustomed to now, um, a very uh, strong statement from Donald Trump, not very orthodox either. However, what I thought was even more interesting was Biden's response to that clip and more generally to Donald Trump's uh, policy on the environment. Here's what he had to say on that issue. Donald Trump's climate denial may not have caused these fires and record floods and record hurricanes, but if he gets a second term, these hellish events will continue to become more common, more devastating, and more deadly. And meanwhile, Donald Trump warns that integration is threatening our suburbs. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But you know what is actually threatening our suburbs? Wildfires are burning the suburbs in the West. Floods are wiping out suburban neighborhoods in the Midwest. Hurricanes are imperiling suburban life along our coast. If we have four more years of Trump's climate denial, how many suburbs will be burned in wildfires? How many suburban neighborhoods will have been flooded out? How many suburbs will have been blown away in superstorms? Yeah, that's pretty strong stuff from Joe Biden then, basically calling Donald Trump a climate denier. So um, could you argue that perhaps Biden's trying to shore up his young base here and sort of energize them on an issue that many hold very dear? I definitely think that's a massive plank, yes. I mean, he's Biden's recently enlarged his green commitments um, if he wins the pr uh, presidency. Uh, originally, he was saying he wants to spend 1.7 trillion US dollars on uh, green infrastructure in the next 10 years if he wins the presidency and that that's now increased the green part of his platform is very very important especially because as you rightfully said it's such an emotive issue for his young base it energizes them and it's an issue they hold dear but i thought the more interesting thing in that little segment was the amount of times biden references the suburbs the suburbs are burning, the suburbs are fl flooding, the suburbs are this, the suburbs are that. Because that is, I think that was a bit of a veiled message and tactic. The suburbs, and particularly white suburbanites, are a key demographic that helped Trump to get to the White House in 2016, and is now very much in doubt. Biden has been polled among this group, white suburbanites, to be leading with a, a, a reasonably substantial margin. If Trump doesn't really win this demographic, he's got a lot of problems in states like Michigan, like Pennsylvania, which have these big suburban communities. And I think that was clearly a pitch from Biden to that group. Yeah, I mean, obviously we know about Biden's climate credentials. I mean, one of the things he's pledged to do as soon as he becomes president is take the US back into the Paris Climate Agreement, which Donald Trump currently has them leaving. So... What of its place in the campaign, and do you think this focus on climate will last? Because I guess it's notable that in a campaign that's so far been dominated by law and order, the coronavirus, the economy, climate change hasn't really featured as of yet. No, it hasn't. And I don't think that's particularly surprising given the US's political landscape. It never really has in any election previously. Pre-Research, who are a group that do extensive polling especially on, on a range of issues, especially the US uh, election, for any one of our listeners, I highly recommend going into some of their polling data on the US election. It is genuinely fascinating. And if you are a political geek, you will spend hours on that website. But as usual, they, um, they polled voters 
on which issues they thought were very important. And at the top of the list, you've got a, the economy with 79% of respondents saying that was very important. Healthcare's underneath that with 69%. The Supreme Court appointees is below that with 64%. Then it's coronavirus with 62%. Crime with 59%. And you have to go many, many, many topics down to get to climate change, which is on 42%. A very, very, very low number compared to the 79% of the economy. It just clearly isn't a big mover in American elections. So I think what you're going to see is that, yes, it will dominate during this time because of the wildfires in the West Coast. However, this will be a very much a transitory thing. I, I shouldn't expect it will last too long. The campaign will then get back to the key issues, the economy, healthcare. Interestingly, Supreme Court appointments, um, which I think if you're a political theorist, shouldn't really be an issue upon which you electioneer on but unfortunately due to the US's uh, current makeup is so no I don't think it will be a very prominent issue so at the moment Biden is much further ahead in the polls than Hillary Clinton was in 2016 so with just over a month to go until November the 3rd um, do you think we're going to see a large change in the polls in the run-up to the election I think it's unlikely However, that's, I think it, the key point of your question was in the polls. Um, I don't think the polls will shift very much. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that Donald Trump won't win again. I was recently looking through old packages of the 2016 election because I had to get some footage of, um, some archive footage of Trump at a 2016 rally. And it was genuinely fascinating because it was a different age, you know. I mean, it was an age where just the the White House was not occupied by Trump and all of the policy changes that he's made had, hadn't happened. And it was remarkable to see just, you know, two weeks before, a week before the election, how little of a chance political analysts gave Trump. All of the poll figures were saying that he had no chance. Every single week he would say something incendiary. It was almost a foregone conclusion that Clinton would win. And it, it just struck me as being very, very similar to the situation right now in the sense that Biden ma has massive leads in the national polls. He has massive leads in m very many of the battleground state polls. But that was the same in 2016 with Clinton. Yes, there might be a bit of an issue of severity of lead, but clearly something went very wrong with the polls, just as it did for Brexit. So I don't think we're going to see any change in the polls, but I don't think that's the important thing. It's, it's a harder quantity that we need to describe. It's it's really having your finger on the pulse of what's happening in these battleground states and, and the country as a whole. Where is the direction of momentum in the campaign going? Is it stagnating for one side or is it increasing for another? I think that's what we should be looking at as we go into the into the final weeks of this election campaign. You see, it's interesting you'd say that because speaking about state polls as a thing... I was reading recently um, some of the writings of the American pollster Nate Silver, who runs the uh, popular polling website 538, and who pre correctly predicted, I think, every state in the 2008 and 2012 US elections. Um, and he basically said that one of the reasons 2016 got it so wrong was because they didn't poll based on education in certain states. And as a result of that, they missed key demographics that while correctly predicted the national outcome, because obviously Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, it didn't correctly predict individual states. So we could see some 
big changes perhaps in that respect. But if the pollsters haven't got it right, then perhaps we could see the same thing from Donald Trump. Yes, I mean, the issue of education in terms of demographic models of voting is so true. Um, you know, traditionally, the Democrats would win more uneducated voters. But that has been totally flipped uh, in the Trump era of politics. Now, you know, the Republican Party is a massive advantage in uneducated voters. And it's something that pollsters have to take into account when they try to accurately map what the election results going to be in, in the whole country or different states. But yes, I, I, I mean, a word of advice to our listeners, don't look too much at the polls. You can really get sucked into just looking at sheet upon sheet upon sheet of political data about the about the US election. I personally like to focus more on the campaign proper. Where is, as I said, where is the sense of momentum? What have both candidates been saying? How is it playing out in the wider community? Those sorts of things. I think they're much more salient and important. For instance, in the 2016 election, it was the emails that really shifted momentum. It was, for a time, the allegations of misogyny against Donald Trump. Um, it was the FBI saying they were going to investigate Clinton. Those are the things that really, really shifted the momentum in the campaign, which polls didn't really pick up. Uh, I echo all of the sentiments of our listeners when we say we're very excited for what the next month and a half has to bring. We are indeed. So moving on to Belarus. Now, ever since the country's presidential election on the 9th of August, protests have engulfed the country over the disputed result, where the longtime incumbent Alexander Lukashenko won. Now, Rob, take us through this story, because it's progressed quite significantly since the summer, and there's been quite a lot of protests. Yeah, so since that election in early August, uh, protests have been held every weekend, mainly in Minsk, but also in other provincial towns and cities across the country. To really get a full understanding of what's happening now, as always with any other international issue, we really need to delve into the immediate history. So Belarus was a state in the USSR, and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Belarus was quite unusual in that it didn't radically marketized like Russia or Ukraine or any of the countries that have oligarchs today. Um, it didn't. It kept much of the Soviet state apparatus, um, which Lukashenko, when he came to power in 1994, was keen on continuing. You know, there's still a lot of control of the economy over society that the state has, much more so than any, in any, any other state. They even still have as their secret service, the KGB. I mean, you know, in Russia they renamed it to the FSB, but no, for Belarus that was too that was too vague. Uh, they wanted to maintain a, a strong link to the past. So in a way, it's 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 good uh, what happened in Belarus over the last twenty years in that it didn't really get ravaged like other Soviet countries did in the nineties um, through economic shock therapy. However, it still remains very dependent on Russian aid. And obviously, you know, partly these protests are caused by political corruption, um, authoritarianism, all of these sorts of issues which haven't gone away either. So if it's dependent on Russian aid, are they quite reliant then on the support of Vladimir Putin? And does he view this as a sort of country that he needs to maintain within a sphere of influence? It's complicated. Yes and no. I mean... Belarus and Russia are extremely close, not only economically, but politically. Uh, they have a customs union. And a couple of years back, uh, Putin was quite eager to further politically integrate Belarus into the Russian Federation. Interestingly, Lukashenko backed off 
from this. He he turned cold on the idea. Some people have speculated because he genuinely didn't want Belarus to become closer to Russia. Some people have thought because it would harm his own power as the leader of Belarus. However, now that's all been put on hold, I mean, Lukashenko is now enthralled by Russia. It's his one big supporting state. It's the one state that props him up. Um, so, yes, he, I think uh, there's definitely been a warming of relations, I think it's fair to say, between Belarus and Russia from what was already a very, very warm relationship. OK, so the protests in particular, how have they fared over the past month and a bit? Well, there have been some very memorable moments. Um, certainly for me, I think the, the, the top few were Lukashenko talking to factory workers um, and getting heckled off the stage. He literally had to be escorted off the stage. Uh, one weekend when there were protests, he, he flew over the protests in his helicopter and then landed, um, you know, armed with an assault rifle to greet uh, police who had blocked off the road to the presidential palace. The, there's been some really striking images from this protest. It, almost comical in a way, I mean, uh, that that thing with the helicopter was just, this was just insane. An opposition council has now been set up with the main challenger, Svetlana Tiskanovska, arguing that the result was rigged. And she's been putting a lot of pressure on the Belarusian president via this council, although it should be said that the government is starting to really clamp down on it. So obviously stuff like this only really leads to real change when you get a significant amount of international support. So has that happened so far? No, not much. Um, the US, which would be the natural choice, is distracted right now. It's in, it's in the middle of an election season. And the EU is really, I would sense, quite loth to getting entangled with Russia. The Baltic states and Poland have taken quite a tough line on this issue, um, you know, you've had sanctions from various Baltic states on various officials in Belarus, but that's independent of the EU. That's part of their own personal foreign policies, not part of the EU-wide foreign policy. It doesn't really feel like Ukraine in that regard, which brought a lot of international attention, brought a lot of involvement from the EU and the big players in the EU, like Germany and France and Britain back then. The world is more distracted now, and Belarus is deemed, I think, less important it's really quite different to the situation in 2014 in Ukraine. There's not much of a pro-EU element in Russia, in Belarus. Uh, it's already much closer to Russia, as I said, both politically and economically. And also most Belarusians, I don't think, look at themselves as naturally European. This is more an issue of they th say that they want a despot who's ruled for 20-something years gone. They thought think the election was rigged and they want a free government. That's where the issue lies, really. So where does the country go from here then? Well, I don't think the protests have much in them, unfortunately. I mean, formal state repression against them is increasing. It's increasing every single weekend. You're seeing a heavier and heavier handed approach by the police. And the international community, as I said, um, the big players, the EU and the US, don't really seem willing to act at this stage. However, that might change. So at the present, it looks like Lukashenko may ride this out they're still very early days. It's only been about six weeks. Ask me the same question in another six weeks' time, and we'll probably have a more accurate answer. Well, I'll definitely do that then. So that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for coming back, guys. We've really enjoyed being back after a lovely break, and hopefully there'll be lots more politics to discuss as we keep going. So th thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.